Well, this morning I want to talk to you about why give. Why give? And I want you to take your Bibles. The text is going to be up on the screen, but I want you to to bring your Bible to church. So if you've got a Bible in hand, uh, please open it up to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 9. In fact, I'm tempted to have you repeat after me, and I will, these five letters, B-Y-B, can you say that? B-Y-B-T-C, T-C, now T-C is not Twin Cities. B-Y-B is bring your Bible, and T-C, to church. B-Y-B-T-C, say it, B-Y-B-T-C. T-C. How many of you got a Bible? Hey, good, good. Got, whether it's on a Bible or on a screen or whatever it is, that's just great that you have it with you. Follow along as I read 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 9. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonia churches in the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability, even on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. Let me back up for just a second and give you the context. Uh, The Jerusalem area was in a great time of famine, And churches in Europe, in Macedonia, had begun to send gifts, make collections to send to the church people in Jerusalem to help them with their need. Uh, Paul is going to probably be a part of delivering that. Titus is mentioned in this passage as well. But the churches in Macedonia were brand new churches, and they were in extreme trouble as well. Whether it was financial trouble, I don't know, but he says financial poverty or extreme poverty but they were being, the Christians were being harassed by Jews who were not too happy about this growing cult, as they called it, of the way or of Jesus' people or of Christianity. So that's the setting, and uh, Paul is writing to the Corinthian church and bragging, really, about the Macedonian churches who have already started to give, and now he's continuing to encourage that giving process. Um, Verse 5, and he exceeded, or they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves, first of all, to the Lord. I want you to repeat that with me. They gave themselves, first of all, to the Lord. And then by the will of God, also to us. So we urged Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part, But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. I want to talk to you this morning about four reasons to give. 
before we get into it, I want you to do something that I, I don't normally bring my wallet up to the pulpit because I don't like baggy pants. So I want you to all take your wallet, your purse, whatever it is you carry your money in or your credit cards. Take it out of your pocket, take it out of your purse, and put it on your lap. I'm gonna put mine right here, dangling over the pulpit. I don't know which side's heavier. I don't want it to fall down. Reasons why I give. Number one, giving clarifies priorities. Giving clarifies priorities. Who or what is the most important priority in your life? The text shows us that the Macedonian churches put God and others before their own needs. Jesus said, no one can serve two masters, either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The King James Version says God and mammon. In both translations, the M is capitalized. The reason is he's paralyzing God and money. He is personalizing He is personifying money because money can become an idol in our life and it can compete with our love and devotion to God. Howard Dayton, the founder of Crown Ministries, writes these words. The reason Jesus talks so much about money is that it competes with God for lordship of our lives. Our relationship to money has an impact on the level of intimacy we have with Christ. Your your use of your money, your use of your portfolio, your use of your material, material goods, your use of those visible things that demonstrate your wealth, demonstrate your relationship with the Lord. They demonstrate the degree of your relationship to the Lord. They're connected, and we have to be very careful that the one doesn't outweigh the other, that money and wealth and material things don't outweigh our devotion to the Lord because he's the one on whom we place the greatest priority. I'm gonna be sharing some stats with you this morning that I just came across this week over the internet from an organization called PushPay that is uh, uh, an organization that handles uh, digital giving, is a digital giving outlet that churches can use, that charities can use, uh, and they've done a massive study uh, on this whole subject of giving uh, in the church, giving among those who claim to be Christians. Here's what they found out. Tithers, that's people who give a tenth of their income to the church and to charitable giving, only make up 10 to 25% of any congregation. So if that's true, and I believe it is, the, the ratio of people who give to the church a tithe in this church is probably somewhere between one out of four people or one out of 10 people. Just laying that out there. 
Here's another stat that they come up with that I've seen before. I wanted recent documentation of this. I had heard this 10 or 15 years ago, but I wanted to know that it was true today. On average, Christians, and that's a pretty broad use of the word, the way they do it, Christians give 2.5% of their income to churches. During the Great Depression, they gave 3.3%. That took me back to this phrase that I went slowly through in verse 3, where it says, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. In fact, I missed the phrase. In the midst of their very severe trial, he's talking about the Macedonian churches, a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. Giving clarifies our priorities. In the Bible, in the Old Testament, there was an offering called the offering of first fruits, very agricultural society, so people uh, who were who loved the Lord would bring a first fruits offering, which was the, the first fruits of their crop, and give it as a sacrifice, an offering to the Lord, that God would bless it, and knowing that if they gave him the first fruits, he would bless the rest of their, their crop. And the tithe is the same kind of thing. You give the Lord the tithe, and you go away confident that God will help you manage the remaining 90% of what you have. It's just a, it's a great principle. Trust me, giving will help you clarify your priorities. Number two, true giving is rooted in grace. True giving is rooted in grace. I want to go back to our text, and I want to pull out verses 1, 6, 7, and 9, because those are the verses that use the word grace. I want you to read these verses with me. We won't stop after each one. We'll just go one right into the other. And when we get to the word grace, I want you to say it fairly loud, okay? Louder than the other words. You can see it's underlined, so let's read. When we get to grace, we're going to we're going to punch it, all right? Let's, go, let's read it together. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonia churches. So we urge Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. True giving is rooted in the greatest gift of grace that's ever been given. Your giving is rooted in the grace of God.
Verse 9 highlights the grace of Christ who for our sake became poor so that we might become rich in him. Some people are entrenched in the idea that tithing is an Old Testament concept and that we're not in the Old Testament anymore, therefore we are not bound to it in any way and we don't need to worry about it. It's immaterial. It doesn't apply. But it's, it's interesting that Paul speaks of giving as a grace issue. Not a tithing issue, but a grace issue. And he says that it's rooted in what Jesus did for us and that it produces in us giving, the kind of giving that he describes in these verses as rich generosity beyond their ability and overflowing joy. Let me tell you something. You start giving, and it will bring joy to your life. It really will. Here's the other phrase that I had you repeat as we were reading through this passage in verse 5. They gave themselves, first of all, to the Lord. They gave themselves, first of all, to the Lord. That's key. Giving isn't so much a monetary issue. It's not an economic issue. It's a a heart issue. It's a heart issue. And the tithe spoken of in the Old Testament is, is simply baseline giving. The line that's set in the New Testament for giving is not the tithe. It's generosity. Tithing is rooted in the grace of God. Your giving and my giving is a measure of how much we appreciate the giving that God did of his son for your salvation and for mine. It's a measure of that. Being a Christian and experiencing the marvelous, incredible, unspeakable, indescribable grace of God is rooted to how we approach the subject of beginning of, of giving. True giving is rooted in grace. Number three, giving combats consumerism. I want to put up uh, three slides that I saw this week and they just kind of blew my mind. And the first one is this, if we can put it up. Of families that make $75,000 plus, only 1% donated 10% of their income. According to a 2015 Share Faith article, People with a salary of less than $20,000 are eight times more likely to give than someone who makes $75,000. Did you hear that? 
That's astounding. We had in our house uh, last month uh, this, this uh, Sudanese lady, um, and uh, she's been in jail. Um, she, is, she is darker in color than almost anybody I've ever seen. And she's the sweetest lady. One of the sweetest ladies I've, I've ever met. And uh, she's, she's got nothing. Now, thank God for social agencies that help these people after they get out of jail and, and for a while provide things for them so that they can get their feet on the ground. But she doesn't have much. And, and just this last week, a couple of times. I was with her one time. Muriel was with her the other time. She came across a family in Walmart that was sitting out on the curb saying that they were needed help. And I'm not going to go into the whole story, but Mary Ellen and, and, and Jewel had a great opportunity to talk to him about the Lord. And Jewel was, Jewel was into her pocket. I mean, she was into her pocket wanting to give. We went by another person that was standing out on the curb just, uh, just yesterday. First thing she does, she says, I want to give to that person. She ain't, she ain't got nothing. Excuse my grammar. That, that, that's just amazing to me. That shows me how attached we can get to money. The more we have, it almost seems like the less likely we are to be able to have a giving heart. That eight times people who with a salary of less than $20,000 are eight times more likely to give than someone who makes $75,000 plus. In the parable of the soils, Jesus talks about the seed, which he interprets later to his disciples as the word of God. The seed is sown among thorns, uh, different kinds of soil. This soil happened, happening to be a thorny soil. And when he explains it to his disciples, he says, of that seed, he says, the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. The deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word. Let me just ask you, are there, are there things in your life are there ideas in your life? Are there values in your life that choke your ability to give? Here's another stat that I found amazing. Nearly one-third of Americans pay the minimum on their credit card every month. This is a stat that comes from the FINRA, an investor education foundation uh, from 2015. And they add this. The typical, pre the typical reason for paying the minimum is that the amount owed is too much to manage. According to a 2016 Time Magazine article, the average US household carries $16,061 in credit card debt. The study goes on to say that by paying 
the minimum amount, they're going to spend way more on interest. According to Nerd Wallet, that's an interesting outfit, Nerd Wallet, quote, the average home with revolving credit card debt pays $904 in interest every year. Just, uh, just yesterday, we got our uh, credit card bill from uh, from this company, Amazon Prime. And the bill, which we put everything, including our giving, on, on our credit card, it just, just makes it easier. We don't write very many checks. In fact, uh, only one-fifth of millennials uh, have ever written one check. It's so good anymore. So we got the credit card yesterday, and uh, we owe we owe a thousand dollars. We always, always, always pay it right off the bat. We never let it roll over. And do you know what? Do you know what? We owe a thousand, but Amazon is so gracious to us <laughs> that they'll let us only pay twenty-five dollars. Wow! Every time I walk into Home Depot, I put, my, I put my product that I'm buying on the counter and the clerk looks at me and she says, do you want to open a Home Depot credit card? I say, I already have one, thank you. They'd open, you know what? They would open another one for me. They would, that's true. They've done it. I could have five Home Depot cards. Just think about it. You let it carry over from one month to the next, to the next, to the next, and, and your interest rate is gonna be somewhere, you finance guys or gals can tell me better, but I think it's somewhere in the vicinity of 18, 19%. It's crazy. That's money that if you, well, if you weren't so quick to spend, if you thought a little bit more, if I thought a little bit more about, can I really afford this? But it's just so easy to throw out the credit card. And in the end, it really disrupts your ability to give. Here's the last one, last stat. You ready? Put it up. Eight-tenths of people who give to churches have zero credit card debt. You get the connection? If you give, you more, like, more than likely have established a set of priorities. And the likelihood of you're going into debt over your head is not that bad. There are a lot of people who want to give. Oh, the other thing that I meant to have you read on there or read for you is when you look at the things that can, are if you look at the things that consistent givers have in common, this is one of the most obvious. They, they, give, they give to the church and they don't have any credit card debt. 
The study goes on to say there are a lot of people who want to give but feel like they're in a financial position that precludes it. In a culture that is continually pushing people to purchase what they cannot afford, the church should make a concerted effort to educate and free people so they can live more productive and generous lives without the constant stress that comes from debt. Throughout my ministry, I've made it a habit. Um, some years more consistently than others, but I'm not afraid to talk about money from the pulpit. I'm not afraid to talk about money from the pulpit. And the reason is, Jesus talked about it all the time. He talked about money more than he talked about almost any other thing. It was just always in his parables or in his straight teaching. He just, he just knew that money could very easily trip people up and put them in bondage so that they, couldn't, they just couldn't live a life of faith. The last reason that I that Mary Ellen and I give, is that generous, generous giving demonstrates a pilgrim spirit. Generous giving demonstrates a pilgrim spirit. Tithing and a pilgrim spirit was first exhibited in a man who lived in Iraq 4,000 years ago. He lived in a tent for over a century. His ancestors were polytheistic. He became known as a patriarch. He became known, his name became known as the father of multitudes. The Bible calls him a friend of God. He tithed before tithing was ever talked about in the Bible as a law. He tithed hundreds of years, maybe more than a thousand, before Moses wrote the law. His name? Abraham. Abraham. We read of him in the heroes of the faith in the book of Hebrews, and if we'll put this Hebrews text up, um, I'd like for you to just follow along. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to a city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. The Bible in the Old Testament and in the New Testament also refers to people who, who are on this journey towards heaven as pilgrims or aliens or foreigners or strangers or sojourners. Um, they were pilgrims. They were on a journey. They weren't home yet. In fact, the Bible says that Abraham was looking for a city whose architect and builder was, was God. We too are pilgrims. I'm going to read to you some things that I've kind of 
worked with. I don't know where these came from. It's not direct quotes, I don't think, but I just want you to know that I'm probably not smart enough to put all these words together. So I just want you to know I'm gaining this insight from other people. Once we were engaged, and once we are engaged and have given ourselves to go with God, there must be no wavering, no dividing or halting. We must follow him fully, wholeheartedly, living by faith in all things to the very end of our earthly journey. We too are pilgrims. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 addresses his readers as, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world. Pilgrims learn to accept, accept the unexpected and unplanned as agents for good. Pilgrims are not tourists. The cruise ship passenger might understandably say, we've paid a lot of money for this trip and it better be perfect. That's not the sentiment of a pilgrim. Pilgrims recognize several spiritual conditions. We need to shed our anxious egos. It's not about us. We need to avoid a constantly consuming hollow heart. Let me stop there. Have you ever bought something, <sighs> taken it home, and within two or three days, you kind of look at it and you say, why the world did I buy that stupid thing? We need to avoid becoming so immersed in time that we forget eternity. If we insist on lives that are like ocean cruises, as trouble-free and under, and under, excuse me, as trouble-free and undemanding as money and power can make them, we lose the light and the freedom and the joy that the pilgrim spirit can offer. These words come from the psalmist. Blessed are those whose strength is in the Lord who have set their hearts on pilgrimage. Pilgrimage. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. We fix our eyes not on what's seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Mary Ellen and I discovered throughout the years, early on, that if we gave a tithe to the Lord's work, and more than a tithe, that God would help us manage the remaining 90%. That's one option of living. Option two is to keep it all for yourself. If you do that, you are on your own. Do you get it? We started small, real small. I started with a $5, was it a month or a week 
uh, gas allowance. Of course, you could buy gas at some places for 25 cents a gallon. Who ever heard of that? But it was pretty meager. But we have found through our entire life of ministry that, that if, we give, if we put God first, he'll take care of the rest. He'll take care of the rest. Take a look at it. If you want to pull out uh, one credit card, one you use the most. Y'all doing this? Who does it belong to? Who does it belong to? Who's first? What you do with that, what you do with your cash, and what you do with your checks if you're an old goat like me that still writes checks once in a while. Actually, I write Mary, Mary Ellen writes the checks if we need to write a check, but we don't, don't use them very much. You, you need to settle that issue. It's a huge issue. Let, if, if you're in that category of people who, who have revolving credit, uh, if you're in over your eyeballs so that it's difficult for you to even think about giving, um, let, let Jesus free you of that bondage. Let Jesus free you of that bondage. Giving is an enormous blessing. Enormous. Brothers and sisters, excel. Excel in the grace of giving. Do you bow your heads with me? Father, this, uh, this church never needs to have a problem with lack of finances again. People seated in these chairs never have to face financial bondage again. I pray for people in this room who, uh, to whom you are speaking by your spirit. And I pray that you would cause each of us to, uh, to really put you first. Help us to go home, even on the way home, help us to talk with our, uh, 
our spouse or we walk with ourselves or help us to sort this out. Help us not to be mad because the preacher talked about money. It's not his problem, it's our problem. And I pray that you would, uh, you would help people could genuinely want to give, not because they have to, not because they're being forced to, but because they, they love and serve a great God who's given them the greatest gift that anybody could ever, ever give them. And help our giving, help our giving to be a reflection of the great, majestic, unspeakable, unimaginable, indescribable, incredible love that you've given us through your son Jesus.